Loneliness is a deeply human problem. And some would argue that it is the great human problem, that it is the defining problem uh, for human beings. And if we think about it, I, I, you know, how, many, how many of the greatest failures in our life uh, were driven by the desire to be part of a community, to be loved, to be accepted by others? Um, even such a great saint as St. Augustine, uh, in his book, The Confessions, which is sort of a, uh, I guess you might call it a, a self-deprecatory autobiography, um, sort of moving through uh, the, some of the unflattering events in his own life. Uh, he recounts uh, one of his earliest, uh, what he considers to be one of his early serious sins, a, kind of a, a test case for himself. And he looks back to this moment where he was with some friends running around, as one did, I guess, in 4th century Rome. Uh, and they came across a pear tree, and he stole a pear. Now, that may not sound like a very grievous sin to you or me, um, but it certainly struck Augustine as a very grievous sin. Um, and particularly, what struck him was, was why he did it. And he spends several pages, as Augustine often does. I mean, he's not shy about using pages for his own sort of wandering thoughts. Um, spends several pages kind of wrestling with, why did he do it? Um, and, and, and he looks at the context, he says, I wasn't hungry. So it wasn't that I was hungry. The pear wasn't even that great. You know, it, it's not that I was hungry. The pear looked good, sure, but it's, you know, it's a pear. I mean, I wasn't hungry. Um, so one of, the, one of the possibilities he offers is that uh, because he was surrounded by these friends, that he would somehow uh, win their approval uh, by this act of daring and uh, choosing to, to steal a pear. And so right there at the beginning, um, Augustine's, uh, life of sin is driven, at least in part, by this desire to be known, to be accepted, and to be loved. And it's not just our, our failures in life that are driven by this. I, I think some of our proudest accomplishments probably have come hand in hand with a sense of belonging. A sense of the enduring love of family as our support, or the powerful cooperation of a good team or of working side by side with friends. Loneliness, the sense of loneliness or of being alone is an age old problem. From the very beginning, God says, God creates everything, creates uh, everything in the, in the sky, in the sea, on the earth, and, and then he creates man. And first, he creates man without anyone else there. It's just, just a guy, you know, Adam. And he looks at him and he says, he, said, he looks at everything and says, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's good. And then he looks at Adam, at this lone human being, and he says, it is not good for man to be alone. Now, God wasn't just beta testing humanity. I mean, he knew, he knew this was truth before he created Adam. Um, but he seems to have done this in order that we might learn that it is not good for man to be alone. That we're not designed to be alone. And that gnawing parasite of loneliness is one that can destroy. As soon as humanity sins, we see precisely that. A wedge is driven between uh, man and woman, between uh, humanity, within humanity. Suspicion and blame and distrust and anger and hatred and jealousy and gossip and slander and falsehood all enter into the picture in these first few chapters when Adam and Eve turn away from their unity in God. Adam and Eve hide from God in their shame, driving a wedge between man and God. 
They shift blame towards others. Eve blames the serpent. Adam blames the woman. They isolate themselves and they end up very much alone. And that is where we find ourselves. As one of the church fathers has said, man has lost that happiness for which he has made and has found a misery for which he was not made. That happiness that we've lost, that God created us, designed us for, was fellowship with one another. Loving connection. Unity. And the misery that we found is this loneliness. It is for that reason that this commemoration of all saints, this feast that we celebrate today, is so very valuable to us, and not only valuable, but necessary to us, because it is the remedy for this ancient loneliness of humanity, that alienation from one another, which is the unavoidable consequence of our alienation from God. And just as being alienated from God, we found a misery for which we were not made. So in being reconciled to God, we begin to find the restoration of that fellowship for which we were made. The communion of saints, in other words, to put it simply, is a present encouragement. It's a deep encouragement to us. In the Gospel reading, Jesus says that so those who suffer now, and I hope you caught the, the use of different verb tenses in the Beatitudes, those who suffer now are blessed because of the hope that they look forward to. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. There's a future hope that makes the present suffering worth enduring. In Paul's letter to the Ephesians, Paul prays that the church would be enlightened, that the eyes of their hearts, a very rich, beautiful way to put it, that the eyes of their hearts would be enlightened so that they might see, so that they might know in the present what is the hope to which they were called. That they might know God's glorious inheritance in the saints and the immeasurable power of God. And in Revelation, there's a picture painted for us of the whole communion of saints in the presence of God caught up in the joy and beauty of worship. We'll talk about that more in a moment. But for now, just notice that all three of these readings offer us present comfort. And even though they look to the future, their intent is to bring us comfort in the present by this idea of the communion of saints. Now, let's say right from the outset, it's not entirely clear to us what happens to the saints after they die and before they are resurrected. Um, It's clear that there's a resurrection of the body. That's very clear. Um, It's a little bit of a mystery what happens between uh, the funeral and the resurrection. Um, It's one of those things that theologians really love to spill a lot of ink over. Uh, But we do have some very clear statements in Scripture. So, for instance, in Luke, Jesus tells the thief on the cross, Today you will be with me in paradise. Okay, not exactly clear, uh, but you will be with me. In Philippians 1, Paul wrestles over whether it would be better for him to die Uh, Or to continue his ministry. Because if he died, he says, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And so Paul imagines that whenever it is that he comes to die, he will, after dying, be present with Christ. And in Revelation 6, um, actually the chapter before our reading for today, when the fifth seal is opened, the souls of the martyrs are under an altar in heaven, and they're crying out to God for him to accomplish his justice on earth. 
They're watching what's happening on earth. They're crying out to God for him to bring justice. God comforts them and encourages them to be patient. So, whatever happens to the saints, we have these three things that I think are clear. First of all, they're with Christ. They're with Christ. Secondly, in some way, they're still able to offer prayers to God on behalf of what's happening on earth. They petition God on our behalf. In other words, they care about us. They're aware of what we're going through, of the struggles that we're facing, and they pray to God on our behalf. And we should add a third. If they are with Christ, and if Christ is with us, then we are still bound together with them. If they are in Christ, and if we are in Christ, then we are still very much part of one body, however much time, distance, and um, distraction may make that unclear. Part of our present encouragement is that the saints who have died are still very much a part of us. That Christ has so bound himself to his people that to be with the saints is to be with Christ, and to be with Christ is to be with the saints. That, by the way, is part of why we're gathered here today, why each of us doesn't just crack open our Bible Bible and and, uh, uh, say a few prayers and do our own thing in our own home or um, in the woods or what have you is because to be with one another is to be with the body of Christ. To be with one another is to be with Jesus. Though it may often seem that we're alone if we look around, if we look up, what we realize is that the bleachers are full. That they are absolutely full of beloved brothers and sisters, uh, uh, individuals, human beings, saints who have been made holy by the blood of the Lamb, who are looking upon us and our struggles, who are praying for our endurance, and who are cheering us on in this race. The communion of saints is very much a present encouragement to us. But the communion of saints is also for us a vision of a hopeful future. Now, let's say a word about hope for a moment. I I think when it comes to the virtue of hope, I think our churches are a little bit anemic. I think we despair very easily. We lack hope. And I think there's a good reason for that. That the darkness and the sadness and the despair that we see in the world around us seems far much more real than what the scriptures promise us. Where we are, in other words, tends to overshadow where we're going. This is, I think of kind of hopping into the car for a road trip with my four-year-old son behind me who one of the first things he'll ask is, is this a long trip? Which for him could be anywhere from one hour to 16 hours. Um, you know, long is anything over kind of grocery store length. Um, and to me, I'm thinking, well, we're going somewhere really great. And so I'll try to remind him of the, you know, the, the joy of the destination. And, and that usually doesn't cut it for him because he's in the car and he's bored for however many hours. I think that's what tends to happen to us, that the, where we are overshadows where we're going. The reward just doesn't always seem worth the cost. We look at the hard road ahead instead of the beauty and the glory of the destination. In other words, we lack imagination. So let me tell you very clearly this morning, and, and I'm speaking from the scriptures here, that where we are is absolutely nothing compared to where we are going. 
Paul says in one of his letters, in one of the darkest times of his life, that the sufferings of this present moment are not a, a blink of an eye compared to the eternal joy that he looks forward to. The difficulty of our road is real, but the beauty and joy of our heavenly home is that much more real and becomes more real to us when, as Paul says, the eyes of our heart are enlightened when we begin to see that great hope. Revelation gives us that vision. Revelation records a joyful, triumphant scene where the saints and angels are worshiping God together. And interestingly, it's not the angels who are leading the worship. It's the saints. They're so thankful, so joyful that they can't contain themselves. This, this unnumbered multitude containing people of every nation, every nationality and language stands before Christ saying, salvation belongs to our God who sits upon the throne and to the Lamb. And then, then the whole heavenly host responds. All of these angels, all of these elders, these living creatures respond saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. And then an elder explains it to John. He says, these are they who have come out of the great tribulation. They're those who have arrived, who have finished that hard road. They are before the throne of God and serve him day and night within his temple. And he who sits upon the throne will shelter them with his presence. The lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eye. In Genesis, creation begins in a garden. Begins with two human beings, a community of two people, man and wife, and very soon that community is broken. And blame and shame and sinfulness enter the picture. But in the new creation, the picture that we see in Revelation is a creation finally completed and consummated, not in a garden, but in a city. In a city teeming with the life of redeemed human beings, the bride and body of Christ, brothers and sisters in him, sons and daughters of God the Father, a perfect and eternal fellowship of love. That, that is a hopeful image. That's the kind of image that I believe can sustain us through tough times. In other words, what we're hearing today, what we remember today as we talk about the communion of saints, as we remember the saints who have gone before, is what we have always wanted to hear. What we have always yearned to be reassured of, which is that we are not alone. That because Christ has reconciled us to God, he has reconciled us to one another. That you have a place. You have a home. A seat at the table. A family. An inheritance. A destiny. And it makes all the difference in the world. There's a, a very strange, it's not quite a book, it's more of a short story, um, by the author G.K. Chesterton. I mean, it's, it, it's as strange a, a story as I've ever read called The Man Who Was Thursday. Um, 
And, uh, and in this bizarre story, uh, he has one of his characters discover this difference that knowing we're not alone makes. The man is serving as an undercover police officer in an illegal organization, and he soon discovers that someone else in the organization is on his side. And what he says is this, four is twice two, but two is not twice one. Two is 2,000 times one. Now that's bad math, I recognize that. That is excellent theology. It does make a difference. These readings remind us that we are even now surrounded by family, that though we so often fail to see it, we are never alone. That with God as our Father, with all the saints as brothers and sisters, we are not alone. We could list all of those people to whom we are bound by Christ. The St. Augustine that I talked about, G.K. Chesterton, who lived only 100 years ago. We could talk about St. Anthony and and, uh, St. John Chrysostom. We could talk about Mary and Joseph. We could talk about Abraham and Isaac and David and the great saints of the Old Testament. And we could add many more throughout the ages, poets and preachers and martyrs and missionaries and the supremely important hosts of faithful, nameless ones. If you didn't catch it, the first hymn we sang, the, the name of that tune was Sine Nomine, which means nameless ones. The unnamed ones. Men and women whose lives we remember today and with whom we will spend eternity in joy and loving worship. The communion in Christ of all the saints living and dead is a doctrine commended to us not just to edify our belief, but to encourage our hearts. Other doctrines protect us from error, but this doctrine protects us from despair. Other doctrines inspire within us faith in the truth, but the communion of saints inspires within us hope for the future and courage for the present moment. The saints are alive in Christ, and Christ is present with us, and we are not alone. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.